We're continuing in our service, in our sermon series in John, and we're moving towards something that I'm going to announce at the congregational meeting. Very excited, our theme for next year. So if you want the, uh, if you want the skinny on what's happening this coming year, make sure you come to that congregational meeting. We kind of seed things that way. This morning, the title of the message is, I'm not buying it. Have you ever said that to somebody? Yeah, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. And uh, I was thinking about this in light of last week. We had a great missions banquet, and the Medinas uh, from Tanzania, Africa, were here. Did a great job of sharing with us, sharing their future ideas of where they want to go and what they believe God's leading them to doing. So we reminisced a little bit about the trip that I took out there with a high school group that I was ministering with uh, right before I came here. And uh, one of the things that happened as we were sitting there in my living room after the banquet is my dog Blaze came in the room. And my dog Blaze did what dogs do. You know, they sniff you, they lick you, and, uh, and then they let you know what they've eaten earlier that day on occasion. You know, just doing what the dog does. And so that brought up some memories from the trip where uh, Gil and Amy's dog, um, unbeknownst to someone in our group, went through a really horrendous time, a really horrendous time while we were out there. And I totally forgot about the story that one of our students had left their malaria medication out. And a dog being a dog got in. He, he assumed that their dog ate all the malaria medication. And so he went and told Gil and Amy. And, and so they stayed calm and they called the vet. And the vet just said, yeah, no, nah, that dog's going to die. It, just forget about it. It's over. And they said, well, what can we do? What can we do in the meantime? And, and he said, I, you know, what, you want to try to make the dog throw up? You could do that, you know, but it's pretty much done. It's over. And so apparently they started feeding the dog brownies. The dog ate a whole platter of brownies. And, and nothing happened. And the dog survived. Can you believe this? So all this malaria medication, a whole platter of brownies, unbeknownst to, uh, to Scotty who lost his... Well, then, I think a few weeks later, once we were home, he found his malaria medication. And so I didn't know that part of the story. And so, you know, Amy was, was letting me know. And, and it reminded me there are, there are parts of being in charge of animals that I just don't like. And so, you know, my dog, we have a beautiful black lab, and she's almost 15, and she'll still play around a little bit with her toys like a puppy, but it's getting harder and harder for her to walk up and down the stairs. She sleeps in our bedroom, and, and so she loves her bones, okay? Any, any animal owners out there, you know, you, you give the dog the bone. She loves her bones. And so uh, other people in my family have used this as a manipulative uh, treatment of my dog. Um, not that I ever would. Well, actually, I don't. I just I can't bring myself to do it. So we're supposed to be giving her these pills. Have you ever tried to give an animal pills? Oh, that's like one of the 18th joys in the world. Okay? Giving an animal a pill. And so as we're supposed to be giving her these pills that are helping her joints uh, and lubricating her, I'm like, you know, give her a, a bottle of 30-weight oil. Lubricate her that way. You know, but I have to shove this pill in her mouth. And you know what happens then, Right? 
like I get slobber all over my hands. And, you know, it's like trying to pry the jaws open, you know, and you're doing a full Nelson on your dog and you're trying to do this. And I'm thinking, how enjoyable is this? Let her sleep downstairs, you know, and, and she's going to like it that much better. But, you know, then you think you get the pill in and what happens? You know, spits it out on the ground again. And now I'm supposed to do what? I'm supposed to pick this slobber pill back up and shove it back in the dog's mouth. You know, how much does the quality of life for that dog uh, is affected, you know? And so just this whole concept of, of taking pills and shoving them down the dog's throat. And so I, don't, I just give the dog the bone, you know? She doesn't have to get the pill. I just give the dog the bone. I leave that to the others. But, you know, when I hand blaze that pill, she ain't buying it. I can even say the word bone. And she's just, you know, she's turning her head. She knows it's the pill. She don't want to have anything to do with it. And she knows the word bone. And spiritually, have you met that person? Maybe you've been trying to share Christ with that person for a long time. But they don't want to have anything to do with it. They literally see this as, and by the way, that pill is good for the dog. It's good for the dog. It's healthy for the dog. It's going to give life to the dog and give her mobility. But now you have this situation where the dog just, I don't, and, and what am I thinking? I'm thinking Janine should give the dog the pill, but uh, you know, take the pill, dog. It's good for you. And so when we're sharing our faith, we think that, don't we? Why, why would we share our faith if we don't believe that? That what Christ has for us is good. It gives us life. But have you met the person that just says to you, I'm not buying it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. That's what our text is about this morning. So let's look. We're going to break this down. We're, come, we're still in chapter 12, 27 through 43. And the triumphal entry has happened. It's a little bit of a different sequence that's going to happen in John than what you're used to with the story. You see triumphal entry, then they go to the upper room, then Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, then you have you know all of this happening. John adds a lot in here that, that the others don't. Um, and we're going to be getting into that into the, um, the following weeks. But there's a unique statement that hits here that, that brought this theme out of I'm not buying it. And for us, in the idea of missions, what do you do when you're trying to share with someone something that's good for them and they just continually say, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. Have you ended up on the other level of, of, or, or the other side of that and just felt discouraged and you just want to give up? This message is for you this morning. This message is for you. Let's look at the Word of God. We're going to be breaking it down little bit verse by verse. So we're going to start in verse 27 here. Verse 27 says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. You know, the interesting part is that you hear a little bit of language here that fits with what Jesus was saying in the garden, don't we? in the Garden of Gethsemane during His suffering. You know, Father, take this cup from me, right? Make it so that I don't have to suffer. And yet, Jesus hasn't made it into the Garden yet. But where is His mindset? 
He knows what is about to transpire. And what is going on? His, his soul is troubled. This is a unique look into who Christ is. The enigma of who Christ is. Fully man, fully God. And when he says that his soul is troubled, there's a part of this that scholars and and pastors want to say is speaking to his humanity. That when we go through difficult times, and Hebrews 4 talks about this, that we have an advocate that understands our suffering because he came down fully taking on the form of man. Going through the trials and temptations that you and I go through. So he understands. He gets it. I love knowing that Jesus understands my problems and my challenges. That I don't have a God that's so far removed from what it's like to be human. That I can trust when I offer prayers up to Him about suffering and difficulty or praise. That I know He understands my heart. But I'm not all that convinced that it's just about His humanity and that His soul is troubled about the suffering that He's about to take on physically. I think there's an element here about His soul is troubled because He knows He's going to take on the sin of the world. He knows what is about to happen. And I don't pretend to understand everything in Scripture, but I will tell you, I will share with you now the one thing that is ultimately a mystery to me, and I I doubt I'll ever fully understand the pernicious value of this. That Jesus being fully God is on the cross in His last few moments. He says, Father, why have You what? Forsaken Me. How can God forsake God? That one's deep. And yet, Jesus knew it was going to get to that level. So when we see these words from Jesus's mouth, or John's mouth, or John quoting Jesus, when He says, now my soul is troubled, enter into the understanding of where your Savior is at this point. In the story of redemption. We're done with the miracles. We're done with the long speeches. Now it's time to hang on the cross. And to take on the sin of the world. Contrast this with Hebrews 12 where it says, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame. While His soul was troubled, He was joyful to take on this purpose. One, to be obedient to the Lord. Two, that you and I might have salvation. Even though His soul was that deeply troubled, it was still a joy for Him to go that distance. Jesus knew His purpose and He would fulfill it out of love. What about our purpose this morning? Are we fulfilling our purpose according to God? One of our purposes is to go and to multiply. Matthew 28 speaks to it. We have the the, uh, counterpart uh, uh, in the synopsis Gospel of Mark over here hanging on the wall. That we are to go into all the world making disciples and baptizing them, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Do we do this out of love? Do we do this because we know we have a purpose? Even though our soul may be troubled, even though we may say and we may look at someone like Arif and and Nahim and just say, we can't break through that wall. 
They don't want it. They're not buying it. Jesus could have said the same thing. But He didn't. And the two reasons I would purposefully lay out to you this morning is number one, because He did so out of love in obedience to His Father. He did so out of love so that you and I can experience life eternal. He went and He multiplied regardless of how stubborn some might be. Let's continue on. Starting in verse 28, Jesus says this, Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. The title here is Jesus glorifies. Jesus glorifies. The Greek for the word glorify here is is a very specific, uh, purposeful effort to get you and I to understand what Jesus was doing here. It is the equivalent of saying, let's take a spotlight. And so I'm kind, of in the, I'm kind of in the dark. I'm not in the dark anymore. Now I can stand right. Let's see if I can find a spot. Here we go. Now I'm in that spotlight directly. And I can come over here. I'm kind of, you can still see me, but I'm not highlighted. Does that make sense? When Jesus used these words, I'm here to glorify the Father. It's to take the Father and put Him in the noticeable spotlight. And say, look, look, look. And so He says, glorify Your name. And what happens? A voice comes from heaven that everybody hears. What would you do if you heard God's voice? Would you be buying it? Would you buy it? I mean, we talk about how this is connected to faith and you've got to believe with faith and that's so true. That's right. There's nothing wrong about that. But Jesus even went to the length of saying, Father, glorify Yourself. And God speaks. One of the three times we have recorded in the Gospels where there was an audible voice. Now many of us sitting here today would say, man, if I heard the audible voice of God... I'd live life differently. Let's see what happened with this crowd. Jesus gives them another chance. And He does so knowing that few would respond, by the way. That few would still respond. But He still does it. And what happens? The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had what? Thundered. You know, it's amazing the excuses that we'll throw out so that we don't have to admit that God is God. And, and sometimes we want to say that that's on those that just aren't buying it. I want to challenge the believer in the room right now and say, you know, sometimes God's speaking to you, whether it's through Scripture or His Holy Spirit, and we're not buying it because it's not convenient. And for the same reason that the world rejected it, and they made up some excuse. Oh, yeah, I, I heard it too, but you uh, uh, thundered. Yeah, yeah. Don't you think it thundered? Of course. Yeah, oh, I heard thunder. And somebody over here is like, no, that ain't going to fly. And so somebody says, uh, I think it was an angel. See, because the Jewish nation believed in angels. That was okay. That wouldn't threaten their established religious purposes or club. 
So let's throw out another convenient argument. Oh, maybe I, I maybe it was an angel because I uh, thunder. I heard some specific things in there. Maybe it was angels. What are they not admitting? They're not admitting that God spoke verbally because if they did admit that, who would they have to say Jesus is? From the Father. They knew the cost of admitting that the Father was responding to the Son. And they said, we're not buying it. Have you met somebody like that? That regardless of how much God has shown Himself in their life, They've just said, we're not buying it. We're not buying it. It's interesting. Turn to John 3, will you? John 3. We're going to find out why we do this. Whether it's us or whether it's those who have not yet come to faith. So again, for those of us that have claimed Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we say we get it. We believe it. Maybe... He's still speaking, and maybe we're still saying, yeah, I'm I'm not buying it. Either way, the question is, why? Whether we need to recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior, or whether we need to act in obedience, why do we do this? We have a commonality, don't we? We have a commonality. And so why does this exist? Here's my theory. Here's why I believe it exists. Let's start in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out. In God. This morning, I want to propose to you that when it comes to this issue of Jesus glorifying the Father, He does so so that we would see the truth of who God is. And as He takes that spotlight and He shines it on the Father and He shines it on truth, how do we respond? Are we like Blaze who just keeps spitting the pill out? I'm not buying it, it doesn't taste good. You know, when God speaks to us, it is for our benefit. Just like that pill for my dog. It's for our benefit. Sometimes, though, on the front side, it doesn't taste good, right? Because we're convinced, like Eve was convinced, that the the fruit would taste oh so good. Men love darkness rather than light. And who of us wants to admit that what we're choosing is against God? That's not part of our nature. And it wasn't part of the crowd's nature. Jesus revolutionizes. That's the next point. We'll pick it up in verse 31. It says this. Jesus is still speaking. And He says this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. 
Walk while you may have walk while you have the light. Let darkness, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. It's amazing how this message keeps replicating itself through John. We just went back to John 3, and if you're a few verses prior to 19, say 16, 17, 18, you hear how Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up, just like in the wilderness. This phraseology that Jesus is using is there for the Jew. It's there for the Jew because the Jew understood Moses. They understood the story of how the serpents came and bit, and all they had to do is look at the staff that was raised up, You know that medical staff that we used to see that would have the serpents intertwined around it? That's where this comes from. That that represents healing, right? So Moses lifted up the staff because that's what God commanded. If you lift up your eyes, you will be what? You'll be saved. You'll be healed. And so Jesus is using a story that the Jewish mind would know they would relate to. There was a sense of urgency as I'm trying to jam that pill. Maybe I get my parents had a claw. Any of you have that? Right? The claw. So it keeps your hands clear from like being bit by the animal. Okay? So, I mean, this is just cruel. So, you know, you, you like pinch the jaws so the jaws open, then you like, you know, and shove that pill down the gullet, you know, all that stuff. Sometimes that has to happen to us spiritually. Jesus went to this great length. He's using. Jewish history to wake up the eyes and the minds of the people. And yet he still knew that most of them wouldn't believe. So he just quit, right? He just quit. He stopped talking. Stopped doing. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. You know, it's interesting as Jesus uses these words, here's something that we need to understand. Satan was defeated at the cross. Many of us don't believe that. Many of us live our lives in bondage to certain things, and we believe that Satan has this effect. We need to let Satan know that he was defeated at the cross. If you're stumbling with something, if you're, if you're uh, struggling with particular things, go to this passage and understand that Jesus is saying, I am here to defeat the ruler of this world. When did it happen? It happened at the cross, and it happened at the resurrection. Satan is defeated. Now he's going to keep trying, and if he can convince you not to pay attention to what Jesus is saying, he'll have an influence in your life. But what Jesus says is, I am going to defeat the ruler of this world. It's going to happen now. So you and I have the freedom to choose to follow Christ and live and lavish in that power of what happened at the cross and the resurrection, or we have the choice to let Satan influence our life and deceive us. It's our choice. We can choose to respond or not. We can choose to buy it or not. Interestingly enough, he talks about light now. He shifts into this idea of light as a response to the crowd. And let me give you three ways of enlightenment, of of seeing Jesus. Remember, we talked about that last week. The Greeks came and they said to to Philip, we want to see Jesus. And so how do we do that? I'm going to give you three ways. It's not just three ways, but let me give you three. Number one, walk in the light. Okay? Walk in the light. Put into action the commands and principles of God. Put into action those principles. I can throw the bucket of pills at Blaze and she she ain't going to eat them. 
It's not going to happen. I've got to, I've got to get up. I've got to unscrew the thing. I've got to be committed to taking the pill and pushing it into her mouth. And then I've got to be committed to picking this slobbery thing up off the floor and doing it again if she's going to reject it. I've got to keep trying. I've got to keep trying. Put your trust in the light. That means you've got to depend on Christ that it has to be Jesus that speaks, not you. It has to be Christ who does the work. The Holy Spirit who does the work. Here's something that is amazing for us to think about when it comes to missions. Are you ready? By most standards, Jesus would be considered a failure when it comes to missions. You see, it wasn't until after He ascended that the church blew up. But what did we hear Jesus say last week? He says, unless a seed of wheat falls to the ground and what? Dies. It cannot replicate itself. It cannot multiply. What's our thing? Go and multiply. Jesus came. He invested. He put His message out. He planted the seed. He did the work so that we can experience salvation, experience victory in life, experience victory through the resurrection. And then He left. And He left it to His apostles. And He gave it over to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowered the words of Christ to affect those and change those for eternity with life. When we feel like we're just not getting the point across, understand Jesus would not have made it on most mission boards. And yet He fulfilled His mission. Does that paint a picture for you how hard-heartedness man has? Where the hard hearts are? And yet Jesus didn't stop. Jesus didn't give up. Jesus didn't pack it up. Jesus did what He was asked to do. He did it out of obedience. Put your trust in Christ. Because even Christ put His trust in God and the Holy Spirit. Third, become children of the light. Allow Christ to shine His light through you so others might see that light. That's what the B team was doing this summer. That's what Gil and Amy, who were here last Sunday night, are doing. That's what some of you in this congregation are doing. That's what we're trying to do through Samaritan's Purse. That's what we do with family members, with, with people who work next to us in the cubicle. Shine your light. I got my highest compliment in five years of coaching yesterday. We finished out a game that was pretty rough. And, and once again, my poor girls were feeling a little beat up and, and a little dejected. And we tied the game. And afterwards, I could just see it on their faces. They made it into the finals. They didn't lose a single game yesterday in the tournament. They're doing great. And yet they just felt beat up. And we were going to go shake the hands of those that had beaten them up. And I told them, look, you keep running. This tournament or this, this game is not over yet. When you go and you shake the hands, if they see you looking defeated, they know they got one more shot on you. I said, this is where your joy shines. And this is where you make a statement 
that regardless of how you wanted to treat me, we're going to rise above that. We're going to play with character. So we're going to go out, we're going to high five the other team with smiles on our faces. And I had a father come up to me and say, you know, that's the best thing my daughter's heard in sports. And I said, well, that's what I want to say. It's more important than any win. How are we running our races? Do you feel defeated? You need to walk in the light. You need to be that light to the community. Matthew 5, 14-16 speaks about this as well. Let your light shine before men so they may what? Give glory to your Father in heaven. The Lord uses you that way. So go and multiply regardless of how stubborn some may be. The crowds caramelize. What? The crowds caramelize. How many of you like caramel apples? Raise your hand. Oh, now you just, some of you just got hungry, didn't you? I hate caramel apples. I, it's like, especially if it like solidifies. You're not, that's like, they should put that around our, our National Guard armory of our gold. Put caramel around it and let it solidify because you're not going to break through that. And so the crowds, while what the Scripture would intimate and what Isaiah is going to intimate here is that the hearts were hardened. I just want you to picture this idea of hardened caramel. All right? Just hardened caramel. And you know, when I try to bite through those things, it's messy. I can't even taste the apple. It just makes me feel defeated trying to get to the thing. There's no joy in it. Do you feel that way with missions? Do you feel that way with trying to reach out sometimes? That it's just so messy. It's just so difficult. It's just so hard. You're never really going to get to taste the apple. The crowd's caramelized. Their hearts were hardened. Let's look and see why I'm saying that. Because I don't know why I'm saying it. Verse 37. Though He had done so many signs before them, like the one of Lazarus, they still, what? Did not believe Him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed that He heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw His glory and spoke of Him. What's being quoted here by John is some prophecy out of the word of Isaiah. And Isaiah saw this vision of Christ. He saw the vision of Christ reaching out to the people and being rejected over and over and over because of the hardened hearts of the crowd. Now there's some interesting language here. And the first thing I want you to understand is many still didn't believe. Even though they had seen Lazarus raised from the dead, even though they had seen other miracles, they still refused to believe. They had hardened hearts. They weren't buying it. The next part that I want to go into is, we're just going to dip our toe in this for a second, alright? That this speaks to some theology that I want, to, I want to be very clear on. We know because of what we've seen out of just even the book of John. We could go to Ephesians 1, we could go to Romans 8, we, we could go all through the New Testament and look at this. We could even go to the Old Testament and look at it. We know that no one comes to the Father except through who? Jesus Christ, alright? Biblical. Jesus Himself says, I have sheep. And who gives the sheep to Christ? The Father. 
No one comes to me unless the Father draws them to me. It is impossible. So then out of statements like that, you get this doctrine called election. And that simply is, I'm going to real quick, just a dip, just a dip of the toe. Many of you already know what that doctrine is. That doctrine is based out of Scripture that God foreknew, okay, Romans 8 stuff, Ephesians 1 stuff, God foreknew those who would love Him. And He's called them to Him. Now we know that this is biblical. Now the other part of this is bad logic. And we would say this, well, if God calls certain ones to Him, then those who are not called are, are damned. They have no opportunity. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what Isaiah is saying here. And I'll give you two illustrations to prove the point. One, from Moses, going back to Pharaoh. God, Jehovah... Gave Pharaoh one chance to turn his hardened heart, didn't he? No. How many chances did he give him? Ten chances. When God is talking to Abraham saying, go get your brother Lot and pull him out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he told Abraham, when Abraham wanted to barter for the lives of the people in Sodom, right? No, that's not what he did. He entertained Abraham's mercy rule. If I can find a hundred righteous people, well, okay, I might not. If I can find 80, you know, whatever the numbers were, and he kept going down and down and down and down. And ultimately, finally, Abraham kind of got in line with what God already saw. Men had hardened their hearts by their own choice. Now, for those of us who are finite beings and very fallible, we kind of dance around with this idea of trying to explain all this and say that we really understand it. I'm here to tell you, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But what I see in Scripture is this. Number one, the Father draws us to Him. That in 1 Corinthians 2, it says that no man can understand the things of God unless the Spirit reveals them to him. Plain Scripture. It is impossible without the Spirit revealing it to us. But what the Scripture also says is that He holds men accountable for their, what? Choices. So often when I'm looking at this doctrine, this challenging doctrine of election, I try to speak to it as one of those horseshoe magnets, right? That one side of the same thing is completely positively charged, and one side of the same thing is negatively charged, but it's all the same thing. I can't tell you where it becomes positive and where it becomes negative, but that doesn't change the reality that these two coexisting truths are tied into one thing. Now, out of this doctrine comes another doctrine because of bad logic, I believe. I believe. And it hints at what Isaiah is saying. That God would not let them... Did you hear that? Let's go to it. I don't want to butcher it. Let's look at what Isaiah said. Verse 39 here, it says, Therefore they could not believe... And verse 40 says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. That sounds pretty brutal, right? Like they, they never had a chance. That's not what's being said. 
It seems like it on a cursory level, but that's not what's being said. Again, you look back to Pharaoh. God gave Pharaoh chances to turn. The other person else, I'll help you understand this idea, and the doctrine here is called reprobation. That there are those who are not chosen to be saved, and because they're not chosen, they are chosen to suffer eternally forever. They are reprobate. Okay, this is an ancient doctrine. It comes out of logic. It doesn't come out of the pages of Scripture, I don't believe. Even if it does, let me hand you something. What do you do with something like that? What do you do with the doctrine of election? What do you do with these things that causes so much division within the church? They are true doctrines, but how then shall we live, as Francis Schaeffer would say? I got my friend Carl right here. I don't know his mind. But he says he trusts the Lord Jesus as his personal Savior. But I don't know his mind. I've got more than more people than I can put fingers up of people that have said that at a certain time and now they say, I don't want to have anything to do with God. We can never really know what's in the heart of an individual. Just don't know. So what do you do with that? You don't give up. You don't give up because Jesus didn't. Did you catch in the story that there are many here in this crowd that refuse to believe? Did you catch that? So why doesn't Jesus just stop speaking if they're not chosen? So if God, in His efforts to help Pharaoh see to change his hard heart, gives Pharaoh multiple chances... And Jesus, knowing those in the crowd, most of which would refuse to believe, keeps speaking and keeps giving opportunity, where does that leave you and I? It leaves you and I to do exactly what Christ did. And not to focus on erroneous doctrines like reprobation that stem out of logic and flawed logic. Will there be those who choose not to love Christ and accept eternal life. Yes. And that alone should drive us. Whether we know for ourselves or whether we're concerned for other people, that should drive us to be light. That's why I gave you three illustrations on how to do it. That should be our response. Not to sit around and, and pontificate about how all this is going to play out. That's Satan's strategy. is to get us to sit and stop doing I can sit on the sofa and watch my football game and sit here and think, well, I don't know, you know, Blaze is, Blaze is doing pretty good. She's all right. She's getting up and down the stairs okay. She didn't need her pill. You know, and she's getting older anyway. You know, quality of life. Just let her, you know, let her do her thing. She can move downstairs later on. There's only one way my dog's going to stay limber, and that's me giving her the pill, whether she likes it or not. That's what we need to focus on. So when we see these words, I don't want you to get discouraged and I don't want you to then take these words and say, well, see, there are those who will not believe. They will never believe. They have a hardened heart. Even Isaiah talked about it. And so I'm done. They're not buying it. You don't have that option. Why not? Because Christ never practiced that option. He never practiced that option. Even though the words of the prophet were fulfilled, 
We do not lose heart. We go and we multiply. Let me give you in conclusion the last point. Never give up hope. It says this, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So you've got some people that are waffling here. They believed in Christ. They couldn't deny what they saw. And they knew truth. But they were too worried about their position. They were too worried about... Remember I told you why I thought people reject the Word and they have a hardened heart? It's because of what they perceive they're going to lose. I didn't tell you that these were the words of John. I told you that was my own opinion. John just backed me up. Alright? John just backed me up. Here's something fascinating. A lot of people believe that this is speaking about Nicodemus. We've seen Nicodemus twice already. Once in his conversation with Christ in a hidden area somewhere in the city. And then secondly, when the blind man gets thrown out of the temple because of Christ healing him, the religious authorities had no answer. So what do they do to him? They went through three different areas to try to discount him. And when they couldn't discount him, they said, get out, be done. And Nicodemus speaks up and he says, even our law says. Because at this point, they started to try to plot against killing Christ. And Nicodemus says, even our law says we can't do that. And what do they do? They start badgering Nicodemus immediately. He felt the pressure. He felt the pressure. He's still part of the religious group at this point of the story. You may never know what's going to happen to that hardened heart. When I see Nahim and Arif, I see guys that there's an emotional tie to now because I took the time to get out of my world. We took the time to get out of our world and connect up with guys relationally halfway around the world that have deep faith. Man, if you met Nahim, you'd be convinced. Am I lying, Andrew? You would be convinced this guy is a sold-out, devoted disciple. But he's serving a form of who God is, not the true God. And in my mind, I want to think, that's just too hard of a barrier. It's not going to happen. It's caramelized. I encourage you, I don't have permission to back off that one. My responsibility is to go and multiply. And just as Christ did so because He loved us, it's my privilege to say that that relationship to reach out to Nahim or Arif or any of those other guys is not one out of obligation, it's one out of love. I encourage you, go and multiply regardless if they're buying it. In conclusion, I sat across from somebody last week during our lunchtime. And they shared with me that somebody had been talking to them about coming to church for three years while they were developing a relationship with them. It never dawned on them to go to church, they told me. 
It's just, they, they, they said, this person had been saying it to me for like three years. And it just never, I, I never saw it. I never, until the Lord got a hold of me and brought those words back. And I found myself here. If Christ had based the success of His work off the amount of people that turned and sought Him, He would have quit a long time ago. But praise God He didn't. Because there's deeper things at work. So if there are those that say, I'm not buying it, understand, you're living exactly what Christ lived. Keep doing what He did. Walk in the light. And put the confidence and trust in Him that He will succeed according to His Father's will. Let me close in prayer. We're going to have the men prepare for the offering and the worship team come on up and um, close us out in a song. Again, if you're visiting with us today, thank you. We're glad you're here. Um, We believe in the Scriptures. We believe in being loving like Jesus Christ. And we're we're a family, singles, elderly, children oriented church. Whatever all of that means. We just love Christ. We want to walk in the truth. That's who we are. And so we're glad you're here. Uh, this morning as you give, do so out of a joyful heart. That's what Scripture says. Um, don't do so under compulsion by any means. But come to the congregational meeting and hear about what God is doing through your giving. It's very exciting. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for the glorious representation of Your work through Your Son. Let us keep that at the forefront of our mind when we think about those that we have reached out to over and over and over with the, with the truth and, and with the love of Christ. Let us never give up on what You can do through that seed that falls to the ground so that it might bloom and give a harvest. Father, thank You for those that have gone out from amongst us. And those that are here, give us great passion and zeal to live for You, to walk in that light so that those around us can truly see the answer of Christ. And for for us that say there's an inconvenient truth behind what we think You might be asking us to do, help us not to have hardened hearts. But help us to respond in trust and faithfulness. Lord, use this gift to your glory. Let lives be changed because of it. Thank you, God. Amen.